there's only one snack that can make me feel like I'm having the true movie theater experience, and that's popcorn. When my mom and I hang in for a girl's night, we have to get our fix, and that's where Kelly's Killer Popcorn comes in. They're a small batch gourmet popcorn company, and believe me, one bite and you'll be hooked. Made in Austin, Texas, this family-owned business has tons of flavors. My mom loves their salted agave caramel, while I have a hard time picking between black pepper or dill pickle. Hmm, maybe I'll just mix the bags together. Oh, and when my dad and brother crash our girl's night, you know that spicy nacho popcorn is coming out. Every flavor is popped in 100% real butter and is whole grain and gluten-free. Which flavor will you be choosing? Head on over to kellyskillerpopcorn.com to indulge yourself in some scary good gourmet popcorn. And make sure to tag them on Instagram at kellyskillerpopcorn so that they can see what movie you're pairing with their flavors. That's kellyskillerpopcorn.com for American-made, small-batch, delicious popcorn. I might be vegetarian, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy a good spice rub. My favorite place to get them is Smoked Bros, a veteran-owned and operated business that sells premium handcrafted dry rubs, spice blends, and seasonings. Guys, you can even put it on your popcorn. My favorites are Honey Badger, because he doesn't give a bleep, and Jelly and Peanut Flavor Topping, because mm, 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 some things just taste better together. The website even has recipes, so go check out smokedbros.com to support a veteran-owned and operated business and fill your cabinet with delicious flavor. On the last episode of the Video Archives podcast, Quentin and Roger had the sun in their eyes in Sunny and Jed. You have a magnificent Morricone score. Sunny! Sunny! Which is another, it's like a, a spirit. Exacted Revenge, Italian style, in Mr. Scarface. This slaughterhouse location, you can't point the camera without getting a groovy shot. And put rubber to the road in American Nitro. Ascot and Gardena, where the 405 <laughs> and the San Diego Freeway meet. Ascot and Gardena, be there! <laughs> and now we bring you the after show. Your backstage pass to exclusive content, answers to your burning questions, and even more film discussion. I'm your mob loan collector, Gala Avery. Wow, last episode was a good one. We had so much fun recording it. We could have talked for hours and hours and hours and hours about the movies, and, well, we did. I've got tons of content from our discussion, which is only available to you, my loyal After Show listeners. During the main episode, we learned all about the relationship between Corbucci and Leone. Quentin and Roger make even more connections between the two directors' films. I think the closest thing to... um epics and on the line of what Leone did is his Mexican Revolution trilogy, which is the mercenary, a.k.a. the professional gun, mm-hmm. uh, compañeros, and uh, what am I doing in the middle of a revolution, which is his, mm-hmm. like, is his trilogy. And if you've ever seen uh, Leone's Duck You Sucker, that is Leone literally doing a Sergio Corbucci Mexican Revolution Western. And that's my favorite Leone film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, weirdly. Yeah, weirdly. I mean, it's, 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 I mean, it's him consciously throwing his hat to do a Corbucci style film, even breaking it down between the white European and, uh, you know, uh, uh, the dirty bandito who becomes, against his will, yeah. a, a revolutionary hero. Yeah. <laughs> He he just wants to steal money. Yeah, and he yeah, it's, it is one of the great uh, character arcs. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh-huh. 
And it is Carbucci. It's it's, com- it's completely Carbucci. I mean, it could be the fourth film, and it, it could be the end of the quartet. Yeah. All right, if if, if Carbucci had done it. We all loved Sonny and Jed, but there was one scene that I completely disagree with Quentin and Roger on. And we haven't even talked about their love scene together, which, especially after everything we watched, was so fucking sexy. You don't mean the one where they're licking each other's nostrils, yeah. right? Oh, no, no. That, the, the one where she kind of bites his nose. Okay, I, the biting of the nose was fine, but there was like a moment where she's like in his nostril. And well, like, it's, a, I don't, it's not about that so much. Yeah, it's, it's like, uh, that no, moment where it, it, no, it the, really the, was they're, that they're, one moment where she kind of bites his nose a little. No, she, and then he does the same it's, thing. No, it's, it's, but it's, it's, it's nuzzling. It's like, it's like animals nuzzling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's cute. All right. Yeah. And you just haven't, you're not, you're not expecting to see cuteness. There, when they're doing their little indie uh, yeah. Eskimo kisses. Yeah. yeah. You know, you're not expecting to see cuteness there. And then- And intimacy. And, yeah. And then all, well, it, well, it's extremely intimate. Yeah. yeah. All right. It's and playful then, intimacy. Know, and which... it's playfulness. And it's just what we're not used to in a Corbucci movie. And we're not used to with these characters. And the fact that they find it, all right, is-, is It like feels a, real. It feels like, like there's a relationship with well, Susan George only, and well, Thomas Millian. Well, not only, yeah. Well, that, that, that's, Which, another, that's another thing being said. Those actors had to be that, had, had an intense level of comfort with each other to be able to pull off that. Scene. That's not for sure, but, but it, it seems like it. It sure feels that way. I mean, if they're, if it's all just acting. Then... And you're, again, you're talking about Susan George hopping between, hopping from Dustin Hoffman to Thomas Millian, two very incredibly difficult actors. And when I say difficult actors, I don't mean they're difficult because they're a problem, uh, because they're a problem. I mean, they're complex personalities. There are complex personalities that, Put their performance and the integrity of their performance above everything else. Yes. Yeah. 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 You know, and then yeah, Hoffman's well known for yeah. his. And uh, Milian is just as bad in yeah. that regards. All right, or just or as just good. as good, or just yeah. as good, just, as, just good. as good in that regards, and just it, as committed. And it looks just as committed. And it looks like both Hoffman and Milian just adored Susan George yeah. because she could hang with she could hang with them full on. Yeah. There is one thing that we can all agree on. Susan George is amazing from jumping from Sonny and Jed to Straw Dogs. She definitely holds her own against any leading man. As Quentin's reading of The Back of the Box showed us, Thomas Millian honestly got the short end of the stick when it came to the credits. Roger and Quentin talked a little bit about him as an actor and what made him perfect for this role. And they have that counterculture... Um, oh, they definitely have a counterculture punk. aspect. Uh, well, Thomas Milan, you know, he, he became a huge star of spaghetti westerns because he did because you, again, you're talking about a country that half of their political thought process was Marxism. Yeah, and so he represented the third world hero, literally so, being Cuban. Yeah, he you know, he and he actually was being a uh, being a Cuban actor. You know, he specialized in playing Mexican peons that rose that rose above their station and be, you know became revolutionaries. But he also there was a quality about him. That uh, he also suggested Che Guevara in his dress and his look, but it also suggested Charles Manson to some degree. And then at a certain point towards the the latter part of the film, he even has a Salvatore Giuliano aspect about him, which mixes in with the Che Guevara aspect of it. I had no idea that Thomas Millian was Cuban and the implications that this has in the greater historical context of this movie. This insight gives me a new appreciation for him as an actor and Jed as a character. So thanks, guys. It's no secret that my favorite kind of Western is a classic American Western. Bud Buttaker is my guy. But Sonny and Jed taught me to open my heart to the Spaghetti Western. 
Quentin, Roger, and I couldn't help but talk about the world building and comedy that Corbucci puts into his spaghetti westerns. And speaking of the madam, because eventually, I mean, like, they're fighting and Jed, like, pulls her off of Sunny Mm -hmm. and he pulls her wig off. Mm -hmm. 100% she has syphilis. Like, we just have to get this out there. Like, her being bald is her having syphilis. Oh, in a Corbucci world, for sure. Yeah. 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 Like, she 100% has syphilis. But Jed has syphilis also, so it's no big deal. Jed has syphilis probably because he's (laughs) been at that whorehouse. So everyone in that town has syphilis. And she has that great moment when Laura Betty's bouncing on her knee and she's like, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Which is just, you don't expect to hear a Western. (laughs) No, you don't. And you know what? Actually... That's not one of the interesting things because back when we watched Cry For Me Billy, we talked about the 70s Western. Yeah. Yeah. It's a different experience completely than like a 50s and 60s Western. Mm -hmm. And then on top of it, it being a spaghetti Western, Mm -hmm. which I love the fact that Jed is eating spaghetti in a spaghetti. Yeah, restaurant. no, I like that too. It's like one of my not, not just eating it, like no, literally one of the most disgusting things in a movie full of disgusting images. And he licks the plate. <laughs> he licks the plate. Yeah. It yeah. was so gross. Like he's like shoveling in his mouth and like twirling it and then just like licking the plate and just. But yeah, eating a spaghetti in a spaghetti western, you gotta love it. I never thought that I would see spaghetti eaten during a spaghetti western. Thanks, Corbucci, for answering my prayers. None of us can get Sunny and Jed's theme song out of our head. Listen as we break into song and the great idea that came along with it. I love uh, Corbucci. Sunny. 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 <laughs> also, I love I love the fact that like the song in it is only Sunny. Like it has nothing to do with Jed. Yeah, 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 sunny. yeah. Yeah, it's not the ballad of Sunny and Jed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just Sunny. <laughs> Gonna have the video archives album before we know it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what? You know what? Actually, not a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Not a bad sunny. idea. All our favorite theme songs. Uh, just for yeah. e- e- each cycle, just put out a, uh-huh. like yeah. a a disc of favorite songs from the movies we did. We could set up a company called Qtel. <laughs> yeah, Qtel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be funny. Huh? Huh? I'm an idea man. 32. <laughs> Explosive hits. Is that something you guys would want? Be sure to let me know. One of our favorite directors of the podcast is Ken Russell. Listen in as Roger and Quentin make a connection between Sonny and Jed and Russell's work. The, the audience is asleep. <laughs> and so guys like Antonin Artaud and Sergio Corbucci and Frank, Ken Russell. And Bunuel. And Bunuel. And like, frankly, all the directors that, I, that I've that i grown up loving, I've noticed. Portakova. Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh-huh. These are the guys who they go out there and they say, no, mm-hmm. the audience is asleep and we're going to like show you things that's going to upset you. But in upsetting you, we wake you. Yeah. Yeah. We open your eyes. Mm-hmm. And um and, and he does a wonderful that's a that uh, that's a wonderful defense for Kabuchi. One of the things that Ken Russell does is he takes history and then he looks at it both viciously and mm-hmm. truthfully. Mm-hmm. And he takes his subjects and he um, he throws them so much so far forward as exaggerations mm-hmm. that it's breaking the the diffusion that time does to you know over to historical characters. Well, I would have to I would have to say one of the best compliments I ever got on in my career is Ken Russell's widow mm. writing a thing about Django Unchained. Yes. All right. <laughs> and sure. making a point about saying, okay, Tarantino can talk about Sergio Leone all he wants, but when Django Dressed as little Lord Flauntroy, <laughs> kills the head overseer. Dressed as little Lord Flauntroy. Yeah, that is Ken Russell. That well, is not Sergio Leone. It is completely, and it is Ken Russell. He's a, she's she could not be more right. If Ken Russell is mentioned, you know I have to jump in. I make a connection with Susan George and Ken Russell that left Roger speaking the truth. 
to bring it back to Ken Russell, she's in Billion Dollar Brain. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's which right. is she's actually Billion Dollar Brain. Which is actually like my second least favorite Ken Russell film if we're getting into it's it. It's my least favorite, but it might be one of the most important mm. Ken Russell movies that people need to watch today because everything that's <laughs> happening in it is happening today. <laughs> <laughs> And I was talking about hyperbole where what I was saying. <laughs> There's no hyperbole at all there. That's a very straight statement. <laughs> I, I'm not saying it's not. It's just funny. <laughs> Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. Before we move on to Mr. Scarface, Quentin has a piece of trivia that he wants to share with all of us. Try to figure it out before he reveals the answer to Roger and I. Okay, Roger, I have a question for you. This is a rhetorical question. I don't expect you to have the answer. Um, I'll still try. Yeah, try. What do Sergio Corbucci and Peter Himes have in common? Uh, Not cinematography. Are their sons both directors? I know that John Hyams is, is Peter Hyams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a, a, look, that, that's a great guess, by the way. Okay, but that's not right. Because uh, very frequently Italian directors, no, no, no. Well, their, well, their sons Well, are... the deal, okay, uh, uh, <laughs> Corbucci doesn't have sons that are in the industry, but his brother was one of the biggest comedy directors in the history of Italy, Bruno Corbucci. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. So close, close, yeah, but very, no cigar. Very close, very close. <laughs> so, uh, uh, no, the, the, the connection between Peter Hyams and Corbucci is... Both of them are the only two to have directed sequels to movies directed by Kubrick. Okay, so Peter Hyams, that's 2010. 2010. 2001. And Corbucci. Corbucci. Uh, what, what? Paths of Glory 2? I know. <laughs> <laughs> what happens next? Even though I was... <laughs> just Kurt Douglas in another trial. Yeah. Right? <laughs> no, that would be Breaker Moran. Yeah. <laughs> Paths of Glory 2. Uh, uh, one of Corbucci's, uh, uh, just, I think his last peplum before he, he stopped doing the peplum ah, is yes. uh, he did a, a Steve Reeves movie called The Slave. And The Slave also is known as Son of Spartacus. Son of Spartacus. Spartacus, it, of course. And it Spartacus. literally is a sequel to Spartacus, where he is Spartacus' son. He does not know he's Spartacus' son. He thinks he, he's a Roman centurion. So he thinks he's just a Roman centurion. Then he realizes that uh, I think he becomes a slave and then he uh, is to take on his dad's job of uh, leading the slaves in revolt. One of the, th it's, 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 a, it's a very fun peplum. And like I said, I'm not the biggest fan of peplums, but I really enjoy Corbucci's. One of the, another really good one of Corbucci's that is really, really terrific, even though he was simply the second unit director on it. But again, he did so much work on it that he received co-director credit is actually probably my very favorite peplum of all because it's, it's the most like a horror film is mm -hmm. Goliath and the Vampires. 
Well, that sounds amazing. Goliath and the Vampires is fantastic. It's it's so easily my favorite peplum because it is it, 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 it well, there's it's a sword and sandals movie with yeah, vampires. It, yeah, uh huh. It's a, you know it, uh, that sounds like it was you know, made similar for me. to Mario Bava's uh, uh, yeah, Hercules that, in the Haunted World, except yeah. it's better than Hercules in the Haunted World. Really? Yeah. And uh, no, it's it is so much fun. Now it's not really like I said. It's it, Corbucci was just the second unit director on it, but it's just so much fun. But the slave is really really good. But not only is the slave really really good, I think at the end of the day. Duel of Titans is a little better, but it's pretty eye-popping because they shot the movie in Egypt. Oh, wow. And so they stage huge scenes in front of the real pyramids. Oh my God. And they stage scenes in front of the Sphinx, you know, and it's it it and it it has a tremendous amount of impact. Wow. I'd like to see that. Yeah, that's cool. Let's let's watch that. Okay, <laughs> cool. Let's watch that tonight. <laughs> no, I want to watch uh, Navajo Joe tonight. Navajo Joe it is. Corbucci. <laughs> We did end up watching Navajo Joe that night, and it was awesome. So if you haven't seen it, put it at the top of your watch list. Please do it for me. To get us in the mood for Mr. Scarface, Roger has a childhood memory of living in Aracaju, Brazil. Consider, you know, uh, Rio de Janeiro. And you like, said they had rats the size of dogs, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in Aracaju, I can remember very clearly uh, these rats that were as big as cats, small dogs, mm-hmm. small, small dogs. cats, like a big. No, you told me a story about you took you threw a cinder block, all right, at one of them, and yeah. it just like looked at you it and bou- hissed. It bounced off of it. Uh-huh. It was like because I was young, and this thing, and it was like hissing, and like this, and I, it, it was kind of in a rubble pile. Like um, mm. Aracaju was on the beach, and so I was walking home mm-hmm. along the beach at night uh, after being at a restaurant, and I was a kid. I was in. Uh, just before high school. And um, suddenly this rat was, and it was freaking big. And, you know, they're aggressive rats Mm -hmm. there. And so I picked up the cinder brick and- Well, was it trying to attack you or just giving you a dirty look? Well, it was probably, as I reflect on it, it was probably like defending itself or even its young. Mm -hmm. So I picked up a cinder brick and I was like, ah, and I threw a cinder brick at it Mm -hmm. and it just bounced off of it. It And it made it more angry. And so I just ran like- Yeah, no shit. Ran like hell. Oh, there was all sorts of crazy things. I mean, there are cockroaches as big as this uh, Snidely Whiplash class that you <laughs> poured my LaCroix into. <laughs> yeah. Like cockroaches that big, and they fly. And so uh, they, they come into the house. They're flying it's around. It's like a bird. It's like a trap yeah, in it's your like house. A, it's a bird that's as big as a, you know, a cockroach as big as a bird. Yeah, it's crazy, crazy stuff there. Well, I can cross Aracaju off of my list of places to visit. Flying cockroaches as big as the Snidely Whiplash glass is not my idea of fun. What better place to start our discussion on Mr. Scarface than by talking about the opening credits? Listen in as we discuss DeLeo's stylish opening and the beautiful women contained within. And I actually really liked the opening credits and the music. I did like the opening credits. How the the intro flows and how he's kind of like looking at the girls and kind of like walking down the street. The Italian girls in this. No, Roger brought it up. With the long hair. No, Roger brought it up. He goes, my God, every woman on the street is some hot Italian chick in the shortest hot pants in the world or the shortest miniskirt in the world. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Every single single fucking girl on the street. By the third one, I was like, oh, they're making a statement about Roman (laughs) Roman women. They're all beautiful. Especially that girl with the hair that just goes all the way down to her body. Each each of them was like a variation, like on a theme. Like there was, it it was great. It was actually, it made Rome look like a really, frankly, it made it look like you don't have to go to Rio de Janeiro. Why are you going to Rio de Janeiro? (laughs) Rome is full of beautiful women. Okay, normally... (laughs) DeLeo makes Rome look like a cesspool, all right? Because it's just this violently, violent meat market, all right? (laughs) 
you know, where the crooks rule completely. <laughs> All right. But in the, but the exception is Mr. Scarface, where actually Rome seems like a pretty fucking groovy place yeah. to tool around in your dune buggy. <laughs> yeah, and I actually really... Yeah, he's going to go to Rio. He's going to give up his dune buggy, his rad apartment like, yeah. that's directed all cool and, and streets literally brimming with uh, hot girls. That are smiling at him. Yeah. And, and, like, they're, all, and they're all giving him the eye. Like They yeah, all want yeah. to like, go to his, right. his carnival apartment. Speaking of carnival apartment, Quentin and Roger talked about the imagery plastered on the walls and how a good set can clue you in on a character's intentions. And so he's got this apartment that is just papered with carnival no, imagery. No, it's funny because when we first see the apartment, we just think it's like, <laughs> well, this guy likes black girls. Yeah, no, I think it's just the first glance, which I thought was a magnificent character choice that I might rip off sometime, that you go to some like random guy's apartment and it's just, Pictures of naked black girls everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, and then I started noticing, well, actually, there's Brasilia. Yeah, no, no. He starts, <laughs> no, the Roger starts, no, 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 that, that's not just black. The, the, it's Brazil. It's carnival. Yeah. It's about carnival. That's his passion is going to Brazil. And and, and everything is, 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 a, is a picture of carnival. Yeah. It was hard to talk about Mr. Scarface without spoiling it completely. Quentin had a few questions for me and my thoughts about the movie. But let me ask you, Gally, now, okay, with, okay, without giving any sort of reveal per se, how did you like narratively when the film revealed itself in the third act? I mean, I liked it. You didn't like I, it as much as we did. I don't think I liked it as much as you guys did. I don't think it had as big of an impact on me when mm. the, like, when the twist or the, the surprise was revealed. How about the, the scene with the actor? That was good. That was good. Okay. Yeah. I love there that There are like lots of really, like, the moment, like, you guys talked about, like, in the, it's also hard to talk about these moments, like, without, like, revealing. just revealing it. But also, like, the moment, like, where he cashes the check in the underground casino, like, I really like that, but you guys already talked about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the funny thing is there's so many great, like, moments in this, mm-hmm. in you know, in this movie that are, that feel. No, I, no, I, I, look, I, the film, we had so much fun watching the film. It's just his other movies are better than this. But the end of the day was, it was one of the best double features between the two movies that I think we've had since we watched it. And that whole last half hour, we're just used to watching movies where you dismiss the last 20 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Because they just run out of steam before the last 20 minutes. And you don't even hold the last 20 minutes against it so much. All right, but this is so not the case. The last half hour lifts the entire movie up on its shoulders. And it's just a different film by the time that last half hour is over. In fact, the last half hour, suddenly, like, all the performances changed for me. Yeah, yeah. My perspective on Jack Plants changed. Mm-hmm. My perspective on the two guys changed. My perspective on um, mm-hmm. uh, their their Vittorio. Yeah. Like everything started like changing in the end, mm-hmm. like in a good way. What other movies of Deleos would Quentin recommend? Here's one you might want to check out. Yeah. <laughs> and are the rest of his movies like pretty violent? Oh, they're crazy, but this is yeah. this is less. Yeah, yeah because this I was going to say this, this is, is not Quentin, so violent. Before we watch this, Quentin showed me a scene from a movie. What? From, the, from the opening scene of, of the boss. Okay. okay, don't describe it. Don't describe I, it. I won't describe it, but I, mean, I will. It's one, of the, simp- it's one of the greatest action scenes of all time. Yeah, I was. I will simply say that it was sort of like uh, a, a very, very good setup. Yeah. Uh, you know, to enter in this movie because it's it was sort it, of like. Okay, here's what I'm going to say. It's so, an incredible I'll, action I'll scene. Use, I'll use this term that's used a lot on podcasts, and I don't normally do this, but I will in this instance. Dun, dun, dun. Deep. 
five? It no, no, I will not use. You have to beep. You have to beep that out. Beep that out. Beep that out. That shit's not playing on the podcast. It's one of the great bonkers action scenes of cinema. Yeah. It's a bonkers action scene. But yeah. I mean, so completely, it's like, oh my God, I, I, is this even happening? Yeah. <laughs> and so he showed me that and he's like, okay, now we're going to watch uh, his uh, yeah, yeah. Jack Flance. Uh-huh. It was great. After recording, we ended up watching DeLeo's 1972 The Italian Connection all together, which was amazing. However, I have to warn you, there are different versions of this movie out there. Quentin had a crazy European bootleg VHS, which had the greatest version possible of the movie, of course. But I haven't been able to find it anywhere online. In this version, they've cut about five minutes from the beginning. Normally, you'd want to see a movie in its entirety. But with these five minutes cut, it sets you up for an amazing reveal as you don't know why the main character is being hunted down. When you see it with this scene, which is what's widely available, the movie doesn't pack as much of a punch. That being said, it's still worth checking out. As you probably remember, Quentin and Roger became aware of American Nitro after seeing a trailer for it on a Paragon tape. I hadn't seen the trailer, so I was curious to see if the movie lived up to their expectations. I did not see the trailer of this movie. How did this movie compare to the trailer that you guys saw? Like, was it as oh, good? It, uh, well... The trailer's a little more exciting because yeah. it's all the exciting footage, all right, crammed, yeah. you know, with one piece of cool music, with, with the theme song running throughout yeah. it from beginning to end, which is the theme song's not bad, yeah. you know. Pretty uh, good. The theme song's pretty good. Um, no, it, it's it's the movie version yeah, of the trailer. Yeah, it lives up to the trailer. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. great. I am so glad the movie was as good as they had hoped. Trailers are an art form. Am I the only one who hates that modern trailers give the entire movie away? I usually try to stay away from them. What about you? Roger dug up some history about the release of American Nitro and how it made its way to Canon Films. I added my two cents in about a film festival that Roger loves. And then they went out and they found the sub distributors. You know, there you have, we have distributors. Well, it's re- it's, rele- it's released by Canon, but it's I think it's the Canon well, before Monacum before no, Golan Golan. No, actually, I looked it up, and here's what happened. Uh-huh. Um, the uh, uh, he went out with it initially in, in 16 and basically four-walled using sub-distributors. Okay. Okay. These are the guys who, um, they're not a distributor, but they're the bookers yeah, 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 yeah. for the distributors. And so they will sometimes take on movies. And so mm-hmm. they had a little bit of success with it. And that was enough to get the attention of some um, of a, larger distributors. Of Canon, yeah. And that turned out to be Canon, mm-hmm. who was just being taken over by Golan Globus. And this was their first- uh, Really? Um, this was their first official commercial release? As I understand it, at the, let's see, a deal with Canon releasing, which is about to go big time after its purchase by the distribution team of Golan and Globus. This is from the mouth of yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Bill Kimberlin, or from the pen of Bill Kimberlin. They paid for a blow up to 35 millimeter and set up a national distribution plan. And that's when the movie really took off. Wow. Like they were the guys who And that's a good blow up too. It's a great blow up. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it has a lot of integrity. Roger, the thing I was going to tell you earlier that I did not tell you is that originally this movie was released in 1979 at the Deauville American Film Festival. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, wow. Yeah, in France and at Filmex here in Los Angeles. Oh, Filmex, That yeah. makes sense. Because how much you want to bet Gil Jacob or whoever was in charge of Cannes at that time wouldn't let him in, so he went to Deauville instead. <laughs> wow, well, there's the Deauville connection. <laughs> like... Uh, this would be a great movie, actually, at Deville. Yeah, yeah, I know it's perfect like, for Deville. because like, yeah. you know the, the the French, the the wealthy French who live up in Deville. That's exactly the kind of Americana they would eat up. If you want to read more about the history of the movie, check out AmericanNitro.com. The crashes in American Nitro are insane. 
we spend some time discussing the differences between funny car drivers and NASCAR drivers and how they've changed over time. This is not like a NASCAR guy getting in a yes. crash. This is a regular person. Yeah. Yes. It's just like <laughs> At the Jim, end of the day, this Jim is a regular person. Yeah, it's yeah. a guy who lives in Torrance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh-huh. in a normal middle class house mm-hmm. whose hobby is, you know, building these cars and puts everything into it. Yeah. And then he's out there on the track and he's wiping out like at 100, yeah, at 200 miles an hour. Yeah, and they're watching it. Yeah, yeah. And they're watching it. And it's, it's gnarly to watch. It's really, it actually is super gnarly to mm-hmm. um Yeah. And speaking of NASCAR, I actually love the part where they're talking about like how this is different from other forms of racing and how they're talking about like the connection that you have with your fans. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like when you get out of the car, like your fans are flocking to you. Unlike other events where you kind of keep professional distance. They make a point about it, but I'm here to make a point. That's how it's changed. They now let fans down in the pits at NASCAR. Oh, cool. Right. All right. What exactly what they're exactly what they're bragging about in. The Funny Car movie is exactly what NASCAR started doing. Yeah, th- probably right? thanks to Funny Car. Yes, I think so. You know, once the race starts, obviously that's not the case. But that three hours, people mm-hmm. get their three hours before the race starts because that's their whole fucking day. Yeah. Okay, they're barbecuing, they're drinking beer, they're hanging out. But part of what they're doing in that three hours is they're moving around. All the cars are in the pit. All right. And they get to watch and look. And, and, and uh, you know, I had a friend that uh, was a mechanic for NASCAR. And she was telling me that the NASCAR drivers are different from every other sports celebrity or entertainment celebrity that there is, where they see a bunch of fans, they walk towards them. Mm-hmm. They don't try to get away from them. They walk towards them and they take every fucking photo and they sign every fucking piece of paper. In our main episode, we talked a lot about Pam, the dominatrix of the track. But there was another woman who stood out to me, the lady washing the green cobra. Yeah, and I also, I love that woman who is like, I think it's, it's the car called the Green Cobra, right? Uh, oh, the one, oh, the, the, the snake? I, the, the one yeah, with the, the snake? snake? Head. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think yeah. it's called the Green Cobra, but I yeah, love yeah. the woman who is like washing it and cleaning it. Oh, I yeah. love that moment. It is so cool because I don't know, like, to be honest, I don't really know why she's the one cleaning it. Yeah, yeah. She looks, I, good, looks I, good cleaning she looks it. Good she looks good cleaning it. Yeah. She looks really good well, cleaning it. Well, just also the head of that car being reduced to just the head of it. Yeah. Okay. It looks fine when you're looking at it all in its total. Yeah. But, but watching her polish it <laughs> Just the with those it. eyes, on, <laughs> with those yellow eyes of the snake as the head of the the, the, the nose of the car, uh, the car became very vivid. Yeah, it was really wonderful. <laughs> Lastly, I couldn't believe some of the stunts in this movie. Listen in as we discuss the motorcycle stunt at the end of the film. First off, the guy at the very end, his name is Bob Carell, mm-hmm. the guy that's on the motorcycle. Oh, yeah. Red Bull wishes that they had footage like oh, this. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because well, Where was that, Red Bull when he was doing his Exactly, shit? because <laughs> that, that camera shot is, like, shocking when they mounted to his motorcycle. Yeah. Was, so, so they've already just already... Now... Not only that, by putting a camera on this motorcycle, they've actually made it like strange. They, they've added, a, a, added wrong, a wrong kind of weight for what he's trying to do. Absolutely. And yeah. I, I can't believe that that was a Nagra. Even though a Nagra is a very small camera, a Nagra 16 mm-hmm. R is a very small mm-hmm. uh, SR. Yeah, yeah, that's what they use for World War II footage. Yeah, yeah it was like, a, yeah, it's a French camera. Wind it up. Yeah, it's a it's relatively quiet camera, which is why it's used for documentaries a lot. It's, it has mm-hmm. a shoulder mount. It's really good. But putting that on the back of a motorcycle, it must have been an IMO or something. This had to be an IMO. A little wind-up uh, camera that they, a destructible camera that's mm-hmm. very small. It must have been one of those because to do that with an eclair on the back, and I didn't see no, it was a, yeah, no, it, it had to be an IMO. That's a million dollar shot. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful shot. shot. And that's our show. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Video Archives After Show. Next week, 
a customer will be joining Quentin and Roger in the store. Wondering who it is? Well, I can tell you that we've discussed one of his movies on a previous podcast episode. Now for the clues. Here's a riddle for all of you loyal fans out there. Try and figure it out. The first film is from the same director that won Gala's top vote for 2022 Discovery of the Year on the Pure Cinema Podcast Discoveries episode. The second movie is the fourth entry in New World Pictures' oldest film franchise. And the third is a film that has an eight-word title and was made by a filmmaking duo with rhyming names, one of which was the first director to make a film in the country of Suriname. I'm your girl of the track, Gala Avery. See you next time on the Video Archives After Show. Despite me sharing the same last name with this charity, I don't have any affiliation with it, besides the fact the issue is very near and dear to my heart. Did you know that in the United States, 2.7 million children currently have a parent in prison, and it's estimated that 10 million children have experienced parental incarceration at some point in their lives? I was one of these kids, and as an adult, I am really grateful to be able to give back to Project Avery. Their mission is to build leadership from within by supporting community through programs such as mentoring and outdoor education, and also to remove the stigma surrounding having a parent that's incarcerated. You don't have to feel alone. If you know a kid who could use these resources or would like to donate money or time to the charity, please go to Project Avery, that's A-V-A-R-Y dot org, to check out what this amazing charity is all about. Again, that's projectavery.org. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 